Hello and welcome to Hey, Remember the 80s? I'm Joe. And I'm Carrie. Remember, we're not professional podcasters or music critics. We're just feeling oh so silky smooth and talking about 80s music, so give us a break. Yeah. Carrie, did you know I just shaved my legs when you wrote that intro? No, I did not, Joe. I'm glad it fits in. (laughs) Yeah. Well, welcome to you, Carrie. Thanks, Joe. Welcome to you. You're settling back into this great nation of ours? Yeah, as as well as I can, I guess. I think you can hear a little bit under the weather, but I'm pushing through yeah. and life goes on. Well, I've got a great song for you to check out if you need to get to feeling a little more patriotic. Oh, God. <laughs> I know. Okay, we'll get to that. Yeah. We found some loyal listeners and new listeners both. We've got them in Deep River, Connecticut, Cheyenne, Wyoming, and Barcelona, Spain. Thank you to all those folks for tuning in, and everyone Mm -hmm. can check out our Facebook at facebook.com slash HRT80S and our Twitter at HRT80S. Carrie, we don't have a huge amount of tidbits like we did last week. No, but we do have a supersized tidbit in and of itself, because we've got to give a big update on running up that hill, which everyone probably has heard all of this already. Well, I don't (laughs) think so. Maybe, actually, there's some new information here that I found, so maybe that'll be interesting to people. It is, yeah. So we did not know last week where it was going to land on the charts in the States, and it debuted at number eight on the Hot 100, or should we say re-entered the Hot 100. (laughs) Yeah. But we're going to break it down a little bit. And I took this information from a great article on Primetimer by Mark Blankenship. You love that website. Yeah, I do. It's a good website. I would suggest it to everybody. So Running Up That Hill was number one on the digital sales chart with 18,300 copies sold. The week before the number one, which was some Lizzo song, had sold 12,000 copies. And we know the Hot 100 now incorporates streaming as well. So Running Up That Hill was number six on the streaming chart with almost 18 million streams. Crazy. Mm -hmm. Joe, it is also being re-promoted to radio The record company is actually asking for airplay on stations that play current hits, not just classic stations. That's awesome. My prayers were heard. (laughs) One last fun fact. Did you know that Running Up That Hill is only the 30th top 10 hit of the last decade to be written by just one person? Oh, my God. I mean, that's not shocking, but it just is sobering yeah sobering to see that in print um these days when songs are written by committee so that's very exciting and then yesterday joe the new uk charts came out and what's the update there well believe it or not the song moved up from it was number eight right the previous week yes in the uk and it went up to number two this week but it also went to number one in australia new zealand Switzerland and Sweden. Wow. Uh-huh. It's insane. Mm-hmm. I love it. Kate has released multiple statements on her official website saying she loves the show and is excited about what the song is doing. I think it's so funny that she's been reclusive all this time. And now I feel like every three days, she's like, well, shit, I got to make another update because <laughs> I, I just broke another chart record. Mm-hmm. But awesome. 
I do like that she seems to really enjoy the show too. That this isn't just like, you know, she asked to get licensed the song and she was like, okay, I guess. She said in one of her statements that she's been watching Stranger Things with her family, I From think, the since beginning. the beginning. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. that's yeah. cool. I really love that. Yeah. Did we already discuss this? I don't think we did. How the first episode has Starpoint, Object of My Desire, one of my favorite songs. I kind of wish that song was getting a little bump on the charts these days. Yeah, it's tough, though, because that one is just playing in a car radio. Right. It's fun. It fits the scene and everything. It's not a plot point. Yeah. You know what I've been thinking about a lot? I'm surprised that NeverEnding Story didn't get a big, huge push by Stranger Things. Remember when that was a big plot point Mm -hmm. in the third season finale? Whenever that was, it feels like five years ago. (laughs) I remember people talking about it at the time, but I don't think it recharted or anything like that. I don't think so either. I wonder if even on the Hot 100, probably not. Let's just throw this out there too. Like objectively running up that hill is just a better song. Oh, absolutely. Than the never ending story. And the thing with never ending story is that people know that song. So it wasn't like people mm. were reintroducing it. Yeah, discovered the song and were like, oh, I love this song so much. It was just kind of like, oh, yeah, that song. But I think with running up that hill, people are genuinely like hearing it for the first time and like falling in love with it. So that's great. That's enough about that. Joe, did you want to send some well wishes out into the world? Uh, I don't know. Do I? (laughs) I'm thinking about you telling me that Ricky Lee Jones has COVID. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's super serious. Maybe that's why that didn't spring to mind. But yeah. She was going to open for the Indigo Girls at their Atlanta show this last week on Thursday, and she had to cancel because she came down with COVID, and she says, everybody, get your boosters. And there hasn't really been that much of an update since then, but I'm sure she'll be just fine, and she has some more shows later this year, one I might even try to go to. Very exciting. Yes, folks, COVID is not over. Continue to protect yourself, do what you need to do, get a booster, get vaccinated if you haven't gotten vaccinated. That's all I'll say about that. But yes, thinking of Ricky Lee Jones and hoping she is gets well soon. Get well very soon. Yes. Well, we can get into our main topic. And this week, it's a supersized edition of Just a Bit Outside. The segment Mm -hmm. where we cover (laughs) every Hot 100 hit of the 80s that peaked between numbers 41 and 100. This week, we've got three from 1980 and four from 1989. There are some real doozies in this bunch. So everyone prepare yourself. Hold on to your hat. Yes. I mean, honestly, you know, I don't pick these randomly. I go in an order this week. I was like, how did all of these songs end up like this? Why do we live in an unjust world? (laughs) I know. So our first entry this week just squeezes into this segment because it peaked at number 41 on March 22nd, 1980. It's Women by Foreigner, or is it Woman? Well, the song's title is Women, but it was listed every single week in Billboard as Woman. That's sexism right there. Someone at Billboard got fired, (laughs) one of the copywriters, from the group's third album, Head Games. This single entered the Hot 100 the week after Head Games dropped out after peaking at number 14 in late 1979. Mick Jones says that this song is supposed to be fun and tongue-in-cheek. Women in distress, women with no 
This song is just gross. (laughs) But the lead singer says it's supposed to just be fun. So you can't get mad at lyrics like women who need a shove. Yeah. Get that woman in the back seat. Yeah. Women that stab you in the back with a switchblade knife. Fellow, we just call them switchblades. I get you needed that (laughs) rhyme, but that was redundant. As you were reciting those, I was thinking to myself, I don't have a problem with people singing songs, men or women singing songs about evil women or women that are shitty. But the problem with this song is that there's no nuance to it. It's just stupid. A list. Yeah. It's a list of just things. <laughs> yeah. If you want to talk about that, do it artfully. Use some metaphors. <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> do you know the album cover for this one? Uh, yeah. Did you know who that is? Well, even the album cover is gross. It's like a woman mm-hmm. like she's sitting on a urinal, right? Let me get back to it. Hang on. Yeah, she's sitting on a urinal in a bathroom. That's really stupid. It is stupid. She doesn't even make sense. I don't understand what she's doing. She's like kind of half sitting on the urinal, turned, looking back at the camera. She's got toilet paper in her hand. Is she peeing in the urinal? What's the situation? I guess that's what's implied here. <laughs> Ugh, it's horrible. But anyways, yes, Joe, um, who is that young lady? It's Lizanne Falk better known for her role in Heathers as Heather McNamara, I believe. Yeah, she's fun. It doesn't look anything like her from Heathers. I mean, this was obviously a good 10 years before that. So how old is she here? That's what I hate about it. Well, I'm on her Wikipedia right now. It says she was born in 1964. So in 1979, she was about 15. (laughs) Gross. Gross indeed. We're going to throw this song right in the garbage. Yeah, it's a bad one. Yeah. Foreigner would have 12 more Hot 100 singles before the end of the decade, including four that peaked just a bit outside. So we'll get to those at some point. Sure, we will. (laughs) Uh, Well, the good news is, you know, there's not going to be any songs in this segment that are worse than that, right? Hmm. I don't know about that, Joe. (laughs) Uh Okay. It's time for a song called Voice of Freedom by Jim Kirk and the TM Singers. Oh my gosh, Carrie, how could you do this to me? Like I said, I just go down the list. (laughs) Well, then I blame America for putting this on the chart at all. Absolutely. So James R. Kirk, don't confuse him with James T. Kirk from Star Trek. He was a producer who wrote accompanying music for programs like American Top 40 and more than 6,500 commercials and station IDs. This song was recorded as a benefit for the American Red Cross, and you are not going to believe it. Here's part of it. I want a world that's full of love, where kids are taught that God's above. I want a world that doesn't waste when we're moms and dads. It's still a beautiful place. I want a world just like America, like the USA. Cause even though the B-side was the Star-Spangled Banner, of course. The song spent just three weeks on the Hot 100, peaking at number 71 on February 23, 1980. In 1986, Jim Kirk created a company called Corporate Magic, 
which is a production firm that has staged productions for the NFL and acts like Garth Brooks. You know, Jim Kirk, maybe just stick to the business side of music. (laughs) Yeah, this song, I don't even know. It's hard to really hate it because it was a benefit. I mean, I just mean because it was a benefit, but the song itself... I don't have the words. It's just horrible. Just so down the middle, so pedantic, so appealing to the most craven political BS. I just hate it. And those children. (laughs) Oh, yeah. They spare no expense at trying to get people to cry or I don't know what they want people to do. Mm -hmm. It made me so mad. It sounds mid-70s. It sounds like variety show, like up with people. It should have come out in 76 with a bicentennial, right? Yeah, you're right. Oh, it sounds like a B-side from A Mighty Wind. Did you ever see that movie? <laughs> yes, indeed. It yes. sounds like the new whatever singers, Main Street singers, mm-hmm. and the lyrics are the absolute worst part, especially. They can say we're conceited. You can say we're too proud. But a lot of our friends have died for what we have. Okay, well, America, that's not like only your thing, right? Other people have fought wars. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> God. Ugh. I want American pride. I want to be all American. I want to eat American. <laughs> I want to sleep American. What does sleep American mean? These are lyrics from the song? These are lyrics from the song. I did not even pay that close of attention. To be honest with you, I think I totally checked out after the first verse, which is like talking about <sighs> wanting kids to grow up with knowing God is above or something like that. And I was like, no, thank you. This is absolutely the worst song we've covered on the podcast. I would rather listen to Neil Sedaka and his daughter, Dara, (laughs) singing come-ons to each other for three and a half minutes than this garbage. I can't disagree. I can't disagree, (laughs) Joe. All right. Well, next on our list is Somewhere in America by Survivor. That one peaked at 70 on May 3rd, 1980, but we covered that one in detail in episode 140 as part of a segment about debut songs by Axe, so you can go check that out if you're interested. Didn't that one have a famous person on their album cover, too? It did, yes. Oh. Remember, it was Kim Basinger or Bassinger. No, don't tell them. They gotta go back and listen. (laughs) Okay. So we've got Autograph by John Denver. John Denver was born... Henry John Duschendorf Jr. and changed his name when someone suggested that Duschendorf would not fit on a marquee. He chose the last name Denver because his favorite state was Colorado. I guess John Colorado (laughs) didn't sound that good to him. (laughs) He had his biggest success in the 70s. His breakthrough hit, Take Me Home Country Roads, came from his fourth album and went to number two in 1971. He had 23 more Hot 100 hits in the 70s, including four number ones. The album Autograph, released in February of 1980, was his 14th. It would become his first album not to reach gold status since 1970. And the title track was the lead single. This is my autograph. And you always will be. 
It peaked at number 52 on April 5th, 1980, but it did reach number 20 on the adult contemporary chart. Playing drums on the track is Hal Blaine, a member of the legendary house band for Phil Spector called The Wrecking Crew. Blaine played on over 6,000 singles, including 40 number one hits. That's got to be some kind of record. John Denver would hit the Hot 100 six more times in the 80s, but only two of those made it to the top 40. Let's see. That's Shanghai Breezes. Mm-hmm. Indeed. What's the other one? Um, I think the one, something about the mountains. <laughs> Was that <laughs> it? Yeah. Autograph. No, that's the one we're talking about right now. No, no, no. I'm saying like, let's oh. talk about autograph. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and not good. Well, I'm fine with it. Here's what I want to say about it. I like the idea of this song. I really like the lyrics. He's talking about his autograph is in the songs that he sings and, you know, his songs will live on forever and be with the person that he's singing to. But yeah, I mean, the music itself is just, it's blah. It doesn't stand out. There's nothing special about it. So do you think he's saying like, so don't ask for my autograph because you have my songs? Let me sit in this Burger King (laughs) uninterrupted. Maybe. I don't know. I didn't think about it that way. I thought about it in a sweet way, not in a way like, get away from me. Not in a Eminem way. The way I am. There's a very specific song where Eminem is rapping about what you just said. Like, when I'm at Taco Bell, leave me alone. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I feel bad because I really don't like this song at all, but... Just looking at John Denver's stats, and, you know, he was beloved for a long mm-hmm. period of American history, so I can't begrudge him that. But this song, not for me. Yeah, his hits from the 70s are really beautiful. Take Me Home, Country Roads, Annie's Song. I mean, those are great songs, but I th- feel like he kept doing the same thing over and over again, and he certainly didn't do anything in the 80s that is memorable right. to me. We're going to skip ahead now, Carrie, to 1989. And a song called Serious Kinda Girl by Christopher Max. Christopher Max comes from a musical family. His father was Gene McDaniels, who had five top 40 hits in the 60s, including the number three hit, 100 Pounds of Clay. Never heard that one. Yeah, I don't think I could sing it for you, but if I heard it, I think I'd recognize it. Would you have to hear the 100 Pounds of Clay part to recognize it? (laughs) Maybe. Christopher studied at the Berkeley College of Music, where he studied drumming. He formed a couple of different bands before he met Niall Rogers in L.A., and the two started working together. Their first work together was unusual, but if you've seen the movie Coming to America, then you remember the fictional product Soul Glow and the crazy jingle for it that's featured in the movie. Here's a clip if you don't remember. That jingle was written by Niall Rogers, and that is Christopher Max singing. That's amazing. I know. Isn't that exciting? I was so tickled to find that out. I wish I had known that before I heard the song, because just based on the soul glow, I would be like, immediately sign this person and give him a record deal, right? <laughs> it's iconic. 
It is. There's a comment on like the YouTube clip of Soul Glow or something where someone says like, I love how this guy is singing this like he's trying to win a Grammy or something. (laughs) He was trying to win a record deal. He sounds good. He actually does. But from an acting perspective, he's selling what he needs to for the Mm -hmm. movie, you know, like it's supposed to be silly and over the top. So he did great job. Love it. Well, in 1989, Niall produced Christopher's debut album titled More Than Physical. Serious Kind of Girl spent eight weeks on the Hot 100, peaking at number 75 on December 23rd, Christopher never released another album, but he has a writing credit on one song from Martika's 1991 album, and he's sung vocals on some new recordings by Chic over the years. He now lives in Holland and appeared on Holland's version of The Voice in 2011. Yeah, you can find out there from The Voice him singing Kiss from a Rose, which is actually pretty good, too. Interesting. He has a great voice. I can't believe that he didn't make it, but also... I'm sure he just kind of got lost in the mix. You know, there were there so was many a lot other happening. acts in yeah. 1989 mm-hmm. that were doing what he was doing so much better. Like, I don't think this song is bad, but doesn't sound unique or different. If they didn't put a sticker on that album that said the voice of Soul Glow from Coming to America, that's on them. Because I would have bought it. I would have done a double take and been like, I might have to check this out. You're right. Like, I remember going to see Coming to America in the theater. Did you? It was rated R, Carrie. I know. And you know what I remember? I have a very specific memory. My sister and I and our other younger cousins were being babysat for the night by our teenage boy cousins. And they thought going to Coming to America was a good idea. Uh, so there you go. <laughs> I'm proud of you. You know, I would if I'd been able to see in the theater, I'd be like, hell yeah, I saw Coming to America in the theater when I was nine much bad in it except for the first scene when there's like boobs i guess you're right other than that yeah huh i mean there's some sexual situations but (laughs) i'm trying to remember at the time if it made such a big impact i think if that came out today soul glow would go viral Uh it would become (laughs) a meme Mm -hmm. it would be such a big thing but yeah they should have capitalized on it that's for sure agree Well, speaking of coming to America, our next song is Ow by Chunky A. Uh, What does that have to do with coming to America? Chunky A is a rapper. They're not an actor. (laughs) Well, Joe, Chunky A was the alter ego of Arsenio Hall. Yes, he was on top of the world in 1989. His talk show debuted on January 3rd and was an immediate hit. Well, Chunky A was supposedly Arsenio's younger brother who had been a roadie for Barry Manilow. What does that even supposed to imply or mean? I don't know. Whoever came up with that backstory also got fired. (laughs) Stupid. Stupid. Ow was the only single from the album to chart. Houston, Madonna, 
an even broad shell. Don't come close to you, the real deal. You're erotic, exotic, a chocolate ton of fun. Every woman I need, all wrapped into one. More cushion for the pushing. I hope you can hang. Let's break cake on your body. It peaked at number 77 on December 16th, 1989, but the video got a bunch of airplay on MTV and featured Arsenio in a fat suit. This is one I definitely remember seeing on MTV over Mm -hmm. and over again. The album also included a parody song of She Drives Me Crazy called Ho Is Lazy, Leave It to Weird Al, Arsenio. And there was also an anti-drug song called Dope, The Big Lie, which featured Paula Abdul, Will Wheaton, and Ice-T. Here's a little taste of Dope, The Big Lie. The Big Lie. I said God would have given us wings if he wanted us high. Yeah. Dope, dope, dope. The Big Lie. The Big Lie. I mean, what can we even say about Ow by Chunky yeah. A. No. We already know that I hate parody songs in general. I just, they're not for me. And then this, it's not even fun. I don't know what the purpose of it is. It's just Cameo's word up with him doing yeah. joke lyrics over it. It's so stupid. <sighs> but Paula Abdul, Will Wheaton, and Ice T, that's my dream blunt rotation. <laughs> Can I say that about people that joined forces for an anti drug song? That would be a very fun evening if you were smoking a joint with Paul Abdul, Will Wheaton, and Ice T. I said blunt. Blunt, joint, whatever. What's the difference? They're not the same thing. You're such a square. (laughs) All right. Where does Arsidio fit in in that? Does he get to smoke with you or no? No, he sits in the car and thinks about (laughs) what he did with this album. Agreed, agreed. It can be the lookout. Carrie, next up is a song called Don't Take It Personal by Jermaine Jackson. This was the 16th Hot 100 single for Jermaine Jackson and was the title track from his 12th studio album. However, reviewers were not very kind. Our old buddy Robert Christgau said Jermaine's heyday was 10, if not 20 years behind him and said he was equally bland as a love man and stud. Robert Christgau was a sassy little queen. (laughs) He was. I do find him, the more and more that you read actual reviews by him, it's like, it's okay, like, if you don't like this music, but he does get quite personal sometimes. It's just like, okay. Well, Well, Don't Take It Personal peaked at number 64 on January 6th, 1990. And here's a clip. Don't be sad. Don't be blue. You have your whole life. Carrie, this one did go all the way to number one on the R&B chart. After this album, Jermaine moved to LaFace Records for one album released in 1991, and he hit the Hot 100 one more time. There wasn't much information about this one. I mean, for a number one R&B hit, it seems to have kind of faded from the consciousness. But 
I liked it. Really? I, I don't think I'm going to add it to a playlist, but I didn't mind listening to it. And if it came on, I would not turn the channel. Yeah, I maybe wouldn't change it. But he does have some songs that we've talked about before mm-hmm. that are so interesting and catchy. Yeah. And there's a lot happening. And I don't think there was a lot happening in this one for me anyway. Yeah, I found it very interesting that he hooked up with LaFace Records. They obviously still believed in him as a force, but I guess it was only one album, so it didn't go anywhere. Too bad for Jermaine Jackson, but I'm sure he's doing just fine. Right. Our last single to cover in Just a Bit Outside this week is Lullaby by The Cure. And this was actually on my second top 40 of the 80s. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's from the classic album Disintegration, released in May of 1989. Throughout the 80s, The Cure's music had become more influenced by pop music. I mean, everyone remembers, you know, um, Just Like Heaven. (laughs) I was going to remember the name of it. (laughs) Everyone remembers uh, uh, (laughs) Lime. But Disintegration was a return to their roots of goth rock. And this stemmed partially from lead singer Robert Smith's depression about turning 30. Jesus Christ. (laughs) And also the fact that he had returned to using hallucinogenic drugs. Oh, good for him. Yeah. Lullaby is about a recurring nightmare he had as a child about being eaten by a big spider. That album's big hit was Love Song, which went all the way to number two, but Lullaby, the follow-up, only peaked at 74 on December 16th, 1989. It only went to number 23 on the Modern Rock chart, which I was shocked about. I thought it would have been a way bigger hit on that chart. But in the UK, it made it to number five. The music video also won the Brit Award for British Video of the Year. I looked up the list. Other nominees, Joe, there was 21 of them. What? (laughs) I know. It's like, who was in charge of the Brit Award nominating committee? They needed to pare it back a little bit. Oh. Yeah, obviously, I love this song. I think we talked about it a little bit during my top 40, and I don't think you're that familiar with it, Joe, but what are your thoughts about Lullaby? Uh, I am not the world's (laughs) biggest Cure fan. Okay. So I want to apologize. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. In the songs from them that I do enjoy listening to, and maybe even would seek out, there's probably a couple, and this is not one of them. Yeah, it is very interesting to me. Even being a Cure fan, I've never really thought about their music (laughs) in a very critical way. But it is kind of funny to follow the trajectory of their career in terms of like, this definitely sounds like something you would have heard from them in the early 80s. And then they really did throughout the 80s become more and more influenced by pop. And this was like a total shift back. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to hear the reasons for that were. But I love it. I know it's not for everyone, but this is a very unique song. I guess you can say that for sure. That I agree with. Well, that's all that we've got for just a bit outside this week. We're making progress. (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, we'll get there. I think, what was that, December 89? Yes, we're, <laughs> we're in December of 1989, and we're in April and May of uh, 1980. So uh. there's quite a few of them. If we do a lot at a time like this, we'll make some happen. <laughs> yeah. But Carrie, we've got another segment that is one of our favorites, I think, right? Mm-hmm. And it's called That's What Friends Are For. It's that segment where we cover some famous artists helping out their friends in 80s music. And today we're covering the 1980 album called Bad Luck Streak in Dancing School by Warren Zevon, which features a bunch of big names helping Warren out. Zevon had quit high school to move to New York City and become a folk singer. In the early 70s, he toured with the Everly Brothers as their keyboard player and band leader. In 1975, he was rooming with Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham in L.A., and he got to know the stars of the L.A. scene, like the Eagles and Linda Ronstadt. He released a couple of albums in the 70s, and he had one chart hit, Werewolves of London, which peaked at number 21 on the Hot 100 in 1978. By the end of the 70s, Zevon was a critical darling. Rolling Stone called him one of the four most important artists to emerge in the decade, alongside Neil Young, Jackson Brown, and Bruce Springsteen. That's pretty huge. Yeah, absolutely. High praise. How familiar were you with Werewolves of London when you were a kid? I remember hearing it. It was a big hit in your house. Yes, absolutely. My dad loved the song, I think, because I know I heard it tons when I was a kid, being kind of scared of it. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm sure I was too. Well, Zivon enlisted the help of a lot of his old friends on that 1980 album, which was dedicated to Ken Millar, a writer who wrote detective novels under the name Ross McDonald. Zivon had become friends with Millar, and Millar was a key person who helped him kick drugs and alcohol in the late 70s. The first single from the album was A Certain Girl, and it became Warren's second hit on the Hot 100, peaking at 57. A cover song, it had originally been recorded by Ernie K. Doe in 1961. Warren's version has Wadi Wachtel on lead guitar. You remember him as the session musician who worked with many folks, including Linda Ronstadt on her early 80s albums. It also had Don Felder of the Eagles on guitar and Jackson Brown on backing vocals. Brown also sang backing vocals on a couple other tracks on the album and played guitar on Gorilla, You're a Desperado. And speaking of the Eagles, Glenn Fry and Don Henley are singing harmony vocals on that track as well, along with J.D. Souther. A Certain Girl, Joe, we play that one on The Attic. And I love it. Oh, boy. It's one of my faves. You don't like it? I do like it, but I find it shocking that you would call it one of your faves. Yeah, I'm obsessed with it. And again, once I heard it in the last month or two, it was maybe a little longer than that, I had a memory of my friend in junior high, Tyson, who would sing it. And I can't remember if I ever heard it or if I just knew the song from him and other people singing it because it was like a funny song that Mm -hmm. we would sing. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's got that call and response. Yes. There's a sir. Yeah. Why am I doing it? We just played a clip. (laughs) So now my question, now that I know that it was a cover, I'm like, I wonder how did Tyson know it? 
Did he know the Warren Zevon version or was he singing the Ernie K. Doe version? Oh, interesting. Well, Tyson, if you're out there. Yeah, Tyson, let me know, please. <laughs> Colin. <laughs> I don't mind it. I think it's fun for sure, but I don't hold it in high regard as you do. <laughs> we have Gorilla You're a Desperado, too. Oh, really? On the attic. I'm sure I've heard it, but I can't think yeah. of it right now. That song is unique, but I like it. Next, we're going to talk about Jeannie Needs a Shooter. Bruce Springsteen had recorded a song called Janie Needs a Shooter in 1973, but it was never released. The story goes that Zevon had heard just the song title from Bruce Springsteen's manager, and Warren was so curious about it, he kept asking Springsteen about the song. Zevon imagined it as the tale from the Old West about an outlaw wooing the sheriff's daughter— but Bruce wouldn't play the song for him, and eventually Bruce told him, you like the title so much, why don't you write your own version? Was this like a friendly conversation, do you think? (laughs) We're not for sure, but I think ultimately, yes. Yeah. So Warren took him up on that, and he wrote some lyrics to Jeannie Needs a Shooter, and then Bruce stepped in and helped him finish that version of the song. Oh, there you go. Mm -hmm. Here is a clip of Zevon's Jeannie Needs a Shooter. She came down from Night's Town with her hands hard from the line. From the first time I laid eyes on her, I knew that she'd be mine. Her father was a lawman, he swore it shoot me dead. As he knew I wanted Jeannie, and I'd have her like I said. Jeannie needs a shooter, shooter like me. It was released as a single, but it didn't chart. Springsteen eventually recorded and released a new version of Janie Needs a Shooter in 2019, but it's not anything at all like Warren's version. This song's a little bizarre. Yeah, it is. I like the story, though. That's really funny that someone would be so Uh caught up on a title. I was reading about this on like a Bruce Springsteen website, and someone said, you know, I wonder if Bruce was doing this deliberately, not playing him the song because he was trying to inspire him, or if he was just being a jerk about it. And I'm like, well, either way, (laughs) I guess it worked out for It's still a good story, Yeah. yeah. I like the Springsteen version, too. Yeah, yeah. It sounds very epic. All right, one last song from this album to mention. We had to include Bed of Coals, which features Linda Ronstadt and J.D. Souther on backing vocals, co-written by Zevon and T-Bone Burnett, who was still just known as Bob Dylan's guitarist and had not yet become a famous producer. I'm too old to die Any opportunity to include a Linda Ronstadt musical contribution, I just got to take it up. What did you think of Bed of Coals? Honestly, I can't really explain it, but it moved me. 
I just love her voice. I mean, it's just kind of one of those stupid things to just say over and over again. But there's just something about her that's magical. Like she could sing the phone book, you know, that old cliche, but it's so true of her. Mm. And she pairs so well with so many different people. It's it's amazing. And she did sort of sing the phone book. Remember when she was on <laughs> The Simpsons? I don't. And she sang with Barney, Plow King. I never watch. I don't. I'm not a Simpsons fan. Ah, well, we're putting a clip of her singing <laughs> Plow King. When the snow starts falling, there's a man you should be calling. That's KL54796. Let it ring. Mr. Plow is a loser, and I think he is a boozer. So, so you better make that call to the Plow King. Okay. Well, back to Warren Zevon. He continued to be a critical darling without much success. He hit the rock chart four times in the 80s, but never reached the Hot 100 again. He continued to struggle with drugs and alcohol before getting clean for good in the mid-80s. And in 1987, he released an album that featured Bill Berry, Peter Buck, and Mike Mills as his backing band. Joe, do you recognize those names? It's definitely R.E.M., but the funny thing is I just learned this, like, in the last month or so. Oh, you knew that about this album? Yeah, I remember being like, what was this about? I didn't even know that. Michael Stipe apparently sings on one track on that album. So he wasn't bitter? Yeah. Bill, Peter, Mike, and Warren Zevon actually recorded a whole album of covers under the name Hindu Love Gods. That sounds familiar to me. I didn't know any of this. That's that's crazy to me. I wonder what songs they covered. Well, we'll find out. Warren Zevon was famously featured as the only guest on The Late Show with David Letterman for one hour on October 30th, 2002, and he passed away in 2003 from cancer. You know, that's where I first really learned of Warren Zevon. I mean, of course, I'd heard Werewolves of London and probably knew his name, but I remember that episode of David Letterman. I do, too. I am probably going to get this wrong, so I shouldn't even bring it up. But I remember when Taylor Swift came out with, I think it was Lover, and some music journalist had written, I don't even know what they were referring to, but they said that she's taken a enjoy every sandwich approach to life. Oh, yeah. I remember being like, what the hell does that mean? (laughs) And so I looked it up, and it was... Warren Zevon, was it in that interview or was it a different interview? No, yep, you're right. I I just read the wiki for it. And yeah, David Letterman said, looking back on your life, what advice would you have? And he said, enjoy every sandwich. I like that. Again, I was moved. Yeah. Apparently, there was a tribute album titled Enjoy Every Sandwich. The songs of Warren Zevon, it's got Don Henley, it's got Jackson Brown with Bonnie Raitt, it's got Bruce Springsteen. Oh my God. Wow, now I'm going to have to listen to this. <laughs> I've got a, a lot yeah. of albums to listen to. Oh, my goodness. Adam Sandler sings Werewolves of London. Oh, I didn't see that. That's amazing. <laughs> but yeah, that album um, that he did with R.E.M. came out in 1987. So look for that in the future. That's what Friends Are For segment. We'll dive into that. Yeah, Warren Zevon, final thoughts. He's not someone that I think of, but I think he has got a great voice. There's something very comforting about his voice to me, so I need to get into him a little bit more. Yep, same. Well, that's it for this week, Joe. Next week, we are going to cover some more R&B superstars. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I like that. Anything else you want to share before we sign off for this week? 
Nope, just living on the roller coaster of Kate Bush's chart resurgence. I know. Next Tuesday, keep your eyes peeled for Mm -hmm. Billboard in the US. I wonder if this will sustain. You know, Stranger Things has now been out for a couple weeks. Yeah. So there was an interview on Billboard between like five of the journalists or editors, you know, for that publication. And they basically were like, so what do you think? Is there a chance that it could go even higher next week? And they all essentially said no, but the main reason was the radio thing. So maybe if people really get their butts in gear and play it, Mm -hmm. maybe. Yeah. All right out there, folks. I mean, you know, put your Spotify on mute all night and put running Uh, up that hill on repeat. (laughs) So uh, that's it. Uh, Do you want to take us out, Joe? Sure. I would like to say thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope you had a good time. And be careful out there. Be safe. Have lots of fun. And I guess we can say enjoy every sandwich now. Oh, yes. Enjoy every sandwich, folks, for sure. Yes. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. But a life without your love is a lie too hard to bear. I don't care who's right or wrong. Only know I love you so. Why did I have to write? this song I should have never let you go